everybody, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm here, as always, with Andrew Vance. Apologies, we didn't get a show out after the Volta España, breaking that down, but we got a little bit busy last week. This show is a little bit different. We were supposed to have Richard Pluge, the general manager of the Yumbo Visma team, on to talk about how we went from being the team's press officer to running it just in six short months and how we took it from one of the worst teams in the sport to one of the best. But Richard had to reschedule at the last second. So what you're about to hear is us recording, waiting for him to come on. So if there are references to a guest that's going to come on and never comes on, that's what's going on. So so please excuse that. But we ended up getting into a wide-ranging conversation about a variety of topics from the recent Vuelta España to the Yumbo Visma Sudal Quick Step potential merger, as well as just a, a conversation about gravel racing. So enjoy, and hopefully we will have that Pluge interview for you soon. While we wait, little peek behind the curtain, we're waiting for Mr. Pluge live. Let's just Let's just talk about the Vuelta. What were your thoughts? We didn't get to talk last week. It's most exciting race of the year, it seems. Very dramatic one. Yeah, <laughs> I can't I'm wait cur- to talk to Richard about yeah, it. Yeah, I cannot wait to talk to the man that engineered this. I don't, I don't, still don't understand why Jonas was there. That's the big question in my mind. I, my suspicion is that he just told the team, or he didn't tell the team. He just held a press conference on stage twenty of the tour. Said, "I'm going to the tour, or I'm going to the Volta," and they had to uh, appease it. But I don't totally get it. I, I. I guess it all all's well that ends well. It seems like, at least from my survey of mainstream media, that a lot of people didn't even notice the kerfuffle on stage 17, that the big takeaway from the event is, oh, wow, Sepkus, the loyal domestique, wins with the help of his two leaders. And that's just only the aficionados really noticed the fact that they were attacking him and trying to drop him and take the lead for themselves um, a mere few days before the race ended. Spencer, you know you can't trust MSM. I, one of the questions that I'm <laughs> it's true. One of, the question, one of the things that I thought about in advance of this interview, and I was reflecting on the Vuelta, and then of course the European Championships, where we had yet another Yumbo Visma one, two, three sweep in slightly different order, slightly unexpected result to my eye, but what a race! I've started to think about: Is it interesting if you have all of the world's best riders on one team? which we don't quite yet, but we might if this merger happens. If there is a merger, we don't know if there is or not. Does that then become interesting just trying to figure out like who within the team is going to win today? And does that dynamic become interesting? Because at the outset, at the Vuelta, as you noted, for aficionados, it, uh, you know, it ruffled a lot of feathers. But is that dynamic actually quite interesting and something we haven't really experienced in the history of the sport before and just a different kind of competition? Yeah, I, yeah, that is concerning. I mean, frankly, I have concerns. If Sudal Quickstep and Yumbo Visma merge, as the rumors would suggest, could happen, that is not good for cycling. We should say, if they keep all their riders, I have my doubts if, Roglic thinks Yumbo's crowded now. What's he going to think about having Remco as a teammate? And Remco wants to lead a team at the Tour de France. That's one of the main things he's been advocating for in the media. That's not happening at, at the new team. So I'm not convinced they would all stay. And I mean, the European Championships was, I would say both the Vault and the European Championships, a bit of an outlier because the start list at Euros was not fantastic. Like that, if you go through the top 10, there's not the of riders on par with um 
Olaf Poy, Christophe Laporte, Wout Van Aert, and Arnaud Delis, who got fourth. So those guys were always going to do well. And then what are the odds that all your riders are fit and healthy at the same time? Like think back to the classics last year with Yumbo. It seemed like they were going to storm through them all when they started. And then once the big races came around, they kind of suffered from not a lack of depth, but just their best riders weren't good enough to win those big races. Like Flanders, Roubaix, I guess Wout maybe was good enough, but, but he flatted. I still don't know if he would have beaten Vanderpool. I definitely don't think he would have beaten Jasper Philipson, who oddly probably should have been going to the line against Van Aert in that race. And then, you know, where, where were they at like Liege? You know, this, this team, I think it's, it's a long ways before they're like sweeping everything because the one day races are just a lot more like difficult to have everything align and have your strong team dominate. But yeah, if they have, if they have Remco, I guess it would stand to reason they could win quite a few of the one days and then the Grand Tours. But I mean, we, we all have short memories. Like no one's talking about Giro d'Italia right. 2022 when they had no prospects for GC. Their stage win prospects weren't that good. Tom Dumoulin was not riding very well. Everyone looked terrible. So, you know, the, these things do wane and whack. Yeah, we'll see. And one of the areas we want to explore with Richard is his rise from journalist to manage, managing director, CEO of the world's most powerful and successful cycling team maybe one of the most successful teams in all of sport ever at this point i would say which is quite remarkable but keeping in mind his background and thinking about what's happening with these rumors right now and really the lack of sourcing in these stories a lot of these stories are single source anonymous reports and i just wonder what's actually going on as we know in professional cycling until you see people standing there in the team jersey, the new sponsor, nothing's really quite certain. So I'm curious what's actually going on. What's the reality of the situation? Not that he's going to come on the show today and tell us, uh, but time will reveal that. And it might be quite different than what Twitter thinks it is today or in the past 48 hours. Yeah, I'm actually kind of glad he's not here for this. But but these single, a lot of these stories, they, they spin an interesting tale. Like, wow, Yumbo, remember Ineos and, and Quickstep were merging? Wow, so interesting. And now Yumbo and Quickstep are merging. I guess that's interesting. It has us all talking. It has these stories being written. But as you say, they're just single source. Like, who, who is the source? Why would someone be saying this? Is this real? Remember the French team sponsored by Amazon last year that was going to have Mark Cavendish on it? Everything is. Right. It's locked down. Everything's good. And then, oh, oops, we actually didn't have a single sponsor. And you're finding out on like December 30th, they're not a team for next year. So th yeah, these single source stories, it's always good to have like a healthy dose of skepticism. And I think Garrett Thomas, I mean, who's quickly becoming like the most electric cycling podcaster out there, <laughs> said on his show, Remco hates Yumbo, Yumbo hates Rimbo, Remco, this isn't going to happen. That's a pretty solid point. They definitely don't like each other. It seems. And even yeah. to think of like a Dutch-Belgian merge team, it's kind of odd. Like, I, I don't know if I've ever seen that before. I don't know if I have either. So I'm quite... So anyway, yeah, cycling sponsorship is truly the wild, wild west. And this is not a next hash deal whatsoever. But I mean, that's another one that comes to mind if anyone remembers. Yes. <laughs> that was locked and loaded, ready to go. Yeah, yeah oh, the company team, doesn't exist. 
Yeah, Team Quebec, I got rug pulled. They had a five-year deal signed with a crypto company in June of 2021. This was pre-Web3 crypto implosion before the the Ethereum merge for anyone who's out there who's uh, who's deep in crypto land. Yeah, and then it turned out it was actually it was all a fraud and they never had a sponsor and it all went away. And then there was like a 10,000 word piece about it and cycling tips, I think. I remember, and it kind of like, it, it it touched the surface of, I don't know if you get these, it feels like there's people, I can't tell if they're bots or humans, and they seem to just be creatures of LinkedIn, and they're always messaging you on LinkedIn, and you're like, what exactly is the plan or the scam here? And it was like that come to life, and they had sponsored the cycling team. But remember Pegasus? This was like way back, like maybe 2010 cool. or something like that. It was the Australian team that was supposed to take the world by storm, and then... November, December, oops, the team doesn't exist. Sorry, everybody, go find new team. Great name. Great name. Still like the name. Yeah, and maybe that's, yeah, Pegasus. Team Pegasus could be an NCL team next year. (laughs) They should. NCL. (laughs) Are we still adhering to our, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Um, I'm trying to think, what city could have the Pegasus? It could be the Seattle Pegasus, maybe. Oh, that's good. That's good. Great, great city for a uh, great city to add in there for crit racing. Easy to get to short flight for everybody. Um, they're going to love that. And one other thing, go past, so, just swing right past the historic fish market down there. Yeah. Like go through the stall, the like waterfront part of the course, throw a salmon across you. It, we should say though, like I was talking to someone like a, a like an investment banker who dealt with M&A his whole life. And he's thinking, he was saying, like, could this really be merged this fast? It seems pretty quick. But we should note that, like, do you remember past mergers just come out of nowhere? Like, remember Cervelo Test Team just one right. day merged with Garmin? They're like, oh, they're, this, they're the same team now. And it felt like it happened very fast. Same thing with Radio Shack and Leopard Trek. And then also, I believe it was Cannondale and Garmin then later merged. Yeah. So they can feel like they come out of nowhere. So I guess it's a possibility. The, the behind-the-scene logistics don't still don't totally make sense to me yeah i had actually speaking of garmin cannadale i had completely forgotten that uh mate mahorich had written for them at the outset of his career i also had forgotten honestly that he had won both the junior and u23 world championships so shame on me for not having a deeper knowledge of his palmares he has recently announced spencer i don't know if you've heard this he is headed to gravel worlds oh wait so also so Gravel Worlds, let's get this straight. Let me get the date. Gravel World Champion. You know the date? I think it might be this weekend. I, I think I think we're very close to the event. It's October eighth. The day it's after October. Lombardia. Yeah. And it has the there was no course for a while. I believe they now actually have a course. In classic and I believe, gravel fashion. Yeah. I, I thought it was gonna be similar to the UCI gravel series where they have them doing laps of a a gravel circuit it appears that they're doing three loops i believe and a long like they're doing a long uh roll into the or whatever they i think they have like 80 miles and then they do these three loops and then they finish the race and yeah i mean you have to wonder is valverde a contender here as well he's been on the circuit this summer well apparently wout's going right Wout's going, Vanderpool's going. 
But if you were a Wout hater, you would say, well, then what, what do you mean? Why would he be in contention to win? The man is out of the business of winning bike races. Um, I think I think he could come back, and I think Gravel Worlds might suit him. Yeah, with Vanderpool, Van Art, Matty Motorich, does feel a little hard to imagine Valverde winning. I did hear though a rumor that the Vuelta he might be coming back. He wants to come back to Movistar next year because he doesn't quite know what to do with his life, and he's apparently in like some of the best shape of his career, which would support your theory that he could win Gravel Worlds. I haven't looked at the course. Apparently, it's more climbing than last year this correct i don't i don't know if we actually know those I just, details i heard yeah. someone say that i overheard in a cafe someone say gravel world has more climbing than last year's course so that's my sourcing to be transparent on my single source story um last year was it I mean, the scratch was it the scratch cafe is that where you heard this it was the rafa cafe okay and people are dialed in gravel world they can't get enough of this but last year was like the ultimate big boy course i mean i don't think there was any hills of any significance should we talk about the awkward fact that gravel world is essentially a road race like they race on road bikes like what is is yeah, that that's a good, good point. or is that bad for gravel that it's essentially just becoming an off a mixed it's called a mixed surface road race because i actually tend to like yeah. those races a lot like strada bianchi fantastic race is that a gravel race or a road race I think I believe you're describing the Belgian waffle ride format, which leads to the next question, which is what is the actual route for the wafer at Belgian waffle ride? Lawrence, if anyone knows, could you please drop us a line? I'm at hardway pod on Twitter and Instagram. And I have Belgian waffle ride. If you're listening, I have written to you. I'd like to know what the course actually is. It's changed a few times in the last few weeks. And Tire selection being critical for my amateur attempt at this event. I would like to know what's actually happening. As it relates to Gravel Worlds, though, I think I think the danger of Gravel Worlds moving more in a road direction, which it certainly is, is it's going to make it a bit more difficult to sell people that fifth or sixth mosaic gravel bike instead of their, you know, maybe their allied all-road bike, which is very close but can only run 38s probably. Yeah, yeah, they have to just like have to keep coming up with courses that are so unique and strange that you, your bike does not work. And then you have to buy a third, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth gravel bike. And then you have to have seven, 750B tires because you know what we've all been thinking on single track? Man, I wish my wheels were bigger because these 29ers are way too small. Give me a clunkier, <laughs> bigger wheel. Um, it will, can you? Just in light. So, is this a gravel like tradition that they just don't release the course and then it's like, no, no, it's not what you're doing. No, it's actually not. I mean, it certainly, it'll make the event much more interesting because uh, the delta of speed and rolling resistance between you need an almost two inch wide knobby tire and you could run a road tire that's uh, 30, 30, uh, 30C is is quite big. They the road tires roll a lot faster. And if you have that road tire on an actual off-road surface with single track and routes, you're definitely getting a flat tire. So it does it is concerning, especially if you're traveling for the event like we are. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and you're putting some time and money into going and doing this and leaving your family and your job. I think it's kind of important to tell people this is what the course actually is. And then of course, once you know what it is, then you can trained specifically for that course so it's very uncommon 
to not know the details of the course unless of course the course is gravel worlds so we might be setting a new precedent here with gravel world championships it might be coming more like joe DeSena's uh death race or something recently introduced at the spartan race the extra mile where they just tack on a few extra miles at the end of the event it's reminding me spencer of there's a cross promoter in the bay area super pro racing murphy mac and famously you know, when you do a cross race, typically you do the first lap and then they tell you it's going to be X number of laps because the race will finish within an hour, 50 minutes, whatever the time limit is for your field. What Murphy would do is when you would get to that final lap, you'd be going to the finish line and then he would say bonus lap or two extra oh, laps. No. Then everyone would have this to race messed up. an extra this lap. It's yeah. Cause of course you're, you're saving for that big sprint to win your master's B race or whatever it is that you're going after. Right. That's messed up. Yeah. <laughs> then this is leaking into gravel. This is what, this is what's happening. It's like surprise. It's uh, I don't know if you've ever ridden like the Clinton mountain bike trails are like unbelievably rocky and technical. It's like, oh, yeah. I'm just worried. It's like night before a Belgium awful ride. We're going out to the Clinton trails. It's it's a hundred mile mountain bike race now. Sorry, you don't have the right bike. Yeah, it, that could be the case. Even on gravel rides here in mid coast Maine, it's the continuum of types of bikes we have, which are all, I don't have a modern gravel bike. I'm riding a 2014 giant TCX cross bike. That's, that's quite broken. And the bottom bracket sounds like somebody threw marbles into a uh, cement mixer. So if there's anyone out there that would like to see me on your bike and representing for your brand, definitely reach out to me. Um, but you know, we we range from my bike, which is a decade old cross bike, to uh, my friend Brad is on a salsa like bike packing bike with two point two inch mountain bike tires. Then my friend Matt, the game warden, is on the Cannondale gravel race bike with thirty eights, and it's almost an aero road bike. And, you know, kind of everything in between, including the, the Lauf Siegla. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's basically, it's like a mountain bike, but it has an aero road bike profile with the Lauf suspension fork and that can run, I think, two and a half inch tires. Whoa. Yeah. So I'm, yeah, there's a, like, there's a huge continuum of like, what is not just the correct tire, but what might the best bike be? for an event. And then there's of course the philosophy of run what you brung, but if you want to go fast, you kind of need to know what do I need for this course? Yeah. Especially on when you, when you're riding uh, rubber on pavement, I would say less important because tires go fast usually. Yeah. But on gravel and mountain bike trails, I mean, you know, from cyclocross, like it's kind of what I never totally loved about cyclocross it's just like a tire choice could make oh, or break a race that's that's the worst yeah it yeah. absolutely it absolutely can make or break a race and i'm glad that that's not something i have to worry about anymore i think i recently sent you a photo spencer of my horde of mastic one oh, vittoria yeah. tubular glue and i have several i have probably like a hundred yards of belgian tape for anybody out there who used the belgian tape method on your uh, tubulars. I still have that if you happen to be running. If you're one of the probably less than 10 people in the United States running tubulars at a cyclocross race, maybe Adam Meyerson is down in Boston. Adam, give me a call if you need some some Belgian tape. I'm sitting on a pretty uh, pretty deep supply up here in the mid yeah. He might have cornered the market on Belgian tape. The man is 
is definitely still running tubulars. That's kind of that that's wild to me that tubulars have just completely disappeared from like when I assume mountain pro mountain biking is all tubeless now. And it feels like yeah, it's pro, all tubeless. Road is almost all tubeless. Like what like the the five people still race like when Vanderpool's racing cyclocross world, is he on tubulars or tubeless? What do yeah. You think? Yeah, those guys are on tubulars. They don't have to prepare their wheels. I mean, when somebody, yeah, somebody when else someone is else doing is doing it, doing it, what do you care? Yeah, that's. I I do think I was talking to Johan Bernil recently about this, and he was saying, "How many flats do you remember, like Lance Armstrong getting at the Tour de France? Maybe one in seven years, almost none." And it's his theory that their their tires were just better, like with the tubular tires that they were less prone to flats than with the, the modern tubeless. You, it wouldn't really make sense at first, you know, at first thought, but you do see a lot more flats than you used to see. And you see a lot more people crashing on wet roads. Than, like think about the Giro, like everyone was going down every time they touched the brake. Right. Yeah, a- absolutely. Something's going on with the tires. I wanted to do, I wanted to go back to BWR Kansas though. For people who follow you on Strava, Spencer, they might know you did put in a big altitude block a couple of weeks back. How's the training been going and what's your objective entering this event? Training's terrible. Yeah, did, did an altitude block <laughs> at lower altitude than I live at. I think that's how you're <laughs> supposed to do it. Um, I did. It's, re- it's reverse acclimatization. Yeah, yeah it's, it's the new It's trend. a very advanced, that's the 400 level technique. Yeah. yeah. And, and Richard is here. He's just listening to us talk about this. But I, yeah, so I did like a six hour ride. I, probably the longest ride I did in, in five years, I would say. Six hours, got halfway up to Stelvio, had to turn around because I was going to miss dinner. Um, <laughs> BT dub Stelvio, <laughs> way bigger than you think it is. Like uh, you look at the record, you're like, okay, uh, Rowan Dennis, 71 minutes. What am I going to be? 80 minutes at the slowest it's like three out three hours minimum for uh for someone going a normal pace um had to turn around ride back to the hotel um got six hours about 100 miles in the leg and then did a couple other big days these in these climbs in europe are, are kind of hard to comprehend like i started i rode from hotel to hotel and one of the climbs was you know you pops up on the garmin and it's like okay average 14 percent length five miles it's like oh my god like this is this must be the most famous climb in the dolomites like no it's like an unnamed climb that no one's ever heard of or done they just have these massive climbs sitting out there but i got got a few good i got like a week and a half of good riding in a lot of uh, a lot of good rucking hiking around with the kid on the back which which will get you in pretty good shape and then i came home had the vuelta got pretty busy with uh with the daily we do podcast the daily newsletter the fitness has slipped the fitness is slipping fast. Had to go to Miami for my sister's birthday this last weekend. Got a nice beach run in, but but no riding. And uh, and things are unraveling fast. My goals at this point are, God, I'd love to, I'd love to not be embarrassed. That that's the goal at this point. How about yourself? Well, I gotta ask. You're going out for that beach run in Miami, shirt off, Oakleys. Like, what are you? What kind of setup are you running? So, so yeah, like 2011, definitely shirt off. Definitely tiny short. Um, no, no shoes. Yeah. Who needs shoes? I'm barefoot. Got, got sunglasses on. I look fantastic. Yeah. These days, I, I'm I'm paranoid about the sun. I got a hat on. I got yeah. I got the shades, big shades covering most of my face. I got a shirt on. Right. I rarely rarely take my shirt on out. Shirt off outside these days. I'm terrified of skin cancer. So a little it's less sexy than it used to be. Um, 
I, I do enjoy, I was a little surprised at like how health conscious Miami Beach was. I kind of pictured it being like a Cancun spring break situation, but it was really just a lot of like, you could just like lift free weight. They had like free, free weights, free of charge, like basically weight rooms on the beach and you could do whatever you wanted to do. And then you could run around. It was, uh, found it pretty, if you just want to like hang out, if you have, if you have months of time on your hand and you just want to hang out somewhere and get fit, I'd say pretty pretty good place to get fit so it's like going to jail in 1985 the freeways exactly. are sitting out for anybody to use yeah that's um, exactly what it yeah. felt like that's, yeah that's perfect it's perfect um i wanted to circle back to the vuelta and garrett thomas's podcast something that he said on his most recent episode that jumped out of me and i know you and i have discussed this before specifically as it relates to enios sky and their gc they're riders who go for GC, but Thomas said that in 2023, because he targeted both the Giro and the Vuelta, he said that to get to racing weight from his like typical fit, whatever he might roll into races other than Grand Tours with, he's dropping 15 pounds in season to get down to race weight for the Giro, and then it sounded like his weight went back up and then he had to strip it off again going into the Vuelta, which, you know, just sounded nuts. <laughs> like, and, and which very... explains the, because I often was wondering during the Vuelta, like, how is this possible? Like, fundamentally yeah. different rider than he was at the Giro. Yeah. And if you noticed his pedal stroke was almost always like 10 strokes lower than everybody else yeah. which to me which i i am guilty of at times which means that you're just not you don't have the fitness that that you should have at that time but this is super i i wonder about this a lot because tom dumoulin another pretty naturally big guy that just had to strip weight for these grand tours yeah a that has to really be taxing on you physically and mentally and it it makes me wonder these naturally light guys like think about sep he's not losing 15 pounds no before a grand tour Jonas, not happening same thing with yeah with Tade, they just walk around at almost their weight race weight. That has to be a massive advantage compared to guys like Garrett Thomas, who have to. I mean, can you imagine losing fifteen pounds from an already lightweight to get ready yeah. for a three week race? No, I can't. Pete Stedna talked about this a bit when he was on Choose the Hard Way, and granted, Pete exited the World Tour, I believe, in twenty nineteen. But yeah, he talked about some of the things that he had to do to maintain target race weight and. It sounded terrible. He was like, he said one of the moments for him that made him decide it was time to leave the world tour. And, you know, Pete rode, I believe he rode the the tour twice and he rode the Vuelta a couple of times, the Giro a couple of times. And yeah, he said at one point he was just sitting in his hotel room eating a, a bag of carrots. He was totally, <laughs> he's totally starving. And that was like what he was supposed to eat for that day until his next training session. He was just like, I'm done doing this. So it takes a very specific kind of human being who's ready to put themselves into some difficult situations that are definitely inadvisable for the average person going out to Valmont, unless you really want it and you know you do. Is yeah, that would be hard. A, I have two questions. I have two questions about that. Is is that a good idea? Like, and the more I think about it, like I understand Garrett Thomas. If he wants to win the Giro, he has to lose that weight. There's no way around it. If you're Pete Stetna, you're not trying to win Grand Tours. You're not even really a stage racer. Should he have been advised to do that? Or should they have just said, 
get, get as big as you can. Like, just be a big, strong guy. Like, think about Uno X. They have all these guys who, A, can get on the front and set pace for four hours or beast their way into breakaways. Like, should, should people be trying to lose? Because this is a big boulder thing. Like, everyone wants to be the next step two, so they'll lose as much weight as possible. Mm. But if you're not a super elite climber, you've just lost a bunch of weight, lost a bunch. I've done this before, though, by the way, lost a bunch of power. You can climb yeah. pretty fast, but not fast enough to really compete with the best. And then you've also gotten slower in every other discipline because you're so light. I, I kind of wonder if that was, was bad logic being given to him by his coaches and team. Yeah, this is something I've reflected on quite a bit during the six years I've been doing the choose choose the hard way because whether it's the domain of professional sport, you're an amateur athlete, or you want to be, you know, you want to reach the highest levels of business, or perhaps you're in the military, you want to be in a, a tier one unit, something like that. There, you know, you want to do the most with what you have. And what I've observed about people who are the best in the world at what they do or among the very best is they become the maximum version of who they are. They don't become an imitation of someone else, which, you know, if you're not Sepp Kuss and perhaps you don't have that frame, you're more of a Garrett Thomas. I mean, Garrett did win the tour one time. It's not something that he could do repeatedly because his, it seems that his body just couldn't manage that. And other people came on the scene who genetically had different limits or their body composition was slightly different. So I, as it relates to pro athletes and amateur writers, I think it's a, a mistake to try to do anything other than maximize whatever it is that you have the potential to be great at. So I don't know if you're walking around at 200 pounds with 5% body fat, probably don't try to become subcoose, maybe go race flat time trials or crits. But yeah. And Garrett Thomas was a good classics racer, probably 20 pounds heavier than he is now. Yeah. I mean, he's a bit of an outlier because you're right. He did win the tour. So you would argue right. that was worth it. Yeah. But he could have just had a fine career as a one day racer, lived a much nicer life. It's essentially what Wout has said when everyone says, why don't you try to win the Tour de France? I don't want to lose the weight. That sounds miserable. Why, why would I do that? Yeah. And it like really does make me wonder if a lot of these young Americans are getting bad advice or just have the wrong idea about what they should be because you lose all this weight, you go race in Europe, and then you have like Aldo Ilisek, who's 210 pounds, 5% body fat, just like hunting you off a cliff just like this i've never suffered so much on a wheel why am i not that big have i thought about this all wrong and then my second question has like the the middle class american bike racer gone away like i was thinking about pete stetna this morning think about guys in the world tour now they're you know like nielsen palace major star maybe doesn't have the recent results to, to justify that classification but just from like a physiology perspective yeah. unbelievably talented um, probably should have had the yellow jersey at last year's tour. Um, Matteo Jorgensen, just like m mega talented superstar. It feels like you get less and less of these like Ted King, Pete Stetna, um, kind of not, I don't want to say journeyman, but a guy that is maybe mid tier on a top tier team. It feels like you just have to be above and beyond talent. Or Quinn Simmons, you know, that's right. think about him compared to Pete Stetna. Quinn Simmons is, is probably you know, making significantly more than Pete ever made. And he's like 21 years old and he's considered 
but probably a protected writer and a leader on his team. I just don't know if you're getting as many Americans in there just that are as good as like a, let's say, replacement level French writer. Yeah, maybe that has to do with the implosion of road racing in America. You have to think that has something to do with it. I also, I'm really curious to see if we start seeing gravel being a feeder into the world tour. It seems improbable because I, I don't think it really develops a rider in the right way or enables them to exhibit the characteristics that they would need to have to attract the interest of a world tour team. But with what's going on with Nika and talent development at the high school level, and that's actually not the point of Nika. It's just for kids to have fun going and mountain biking. At the same time, we've seen some superior talents come out of that program and go into the world tour. I wonder if we're going to see kids rising up through cross-country mountain biking, going into gravel, because I think that's really going to be the only viable-ish career path for a professional cyclist here for the next couple of years. Does that then become a feeder system into world tour racing, or do we see another bifurcation and America just goes in the direction of its crits and gravel and no one crosses over except for a handful of people, like you just mentioned, Nielsen, Mateo. I guess, yeah, Subcus would be the perfect example of Nika, which yeah. is high school mountain biking, basically, that is meant just for people to have fun. And then he went and now won one of the biggest road races in the world. Probably an outlier, probably, probably not many people. I mean, we, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, look at his family. And yeah, look, yeah. <laughs> he's, a very, he's a very gifted writer who worked, who's worked very hard to do what he's done, but he's not, you know... Johnny coming off the bench with no talent into Nika and pedaling a little bit and going to the world tour. I do think if you want to be a top level road racer in the, in your American, the way to do it is, is probably that Pat is probably Nika just race as much mountain bike as you can when you're young, because I, I worry about, and I don't know if I might be wrong. I don't think I'm wrong, but have we seen anyone like a gravel native grow up racing gravel and then cross over and be successful on the road. I, I think those races are too long. I, I, one, I think they're too long. If you're like 16 years old, you shouldn't be doing like a seven hour gravel race. That's probably just not going to develop your top end as much as you need it for road racing. And that's why mountain biking is really good. Like think of all those talented uh, female mountain bikers, like um, Caroline Blanc, maybe is their name, or, or Salvia Blanc, the U.S. national champion. And then um, Haley Batten, like, just really big engines probably could race professionally on the road if they wanted to. I think for a right. woman, maybe a mountain bike career is probably better because you control your own destiny, but you know, just like big engines, really explosive. Like you could imagine developing that, you know, on the, on the men's side and then going to the world tour with, with some uh, steep learning. But yeah. I just don't know if you can really like learn how to race and gravel and then take that over to the road. I mean, what do you, so to go back to our gravel world, what do you think about uh, Keegan Swenson? Because is he doing gravel worlds? He is doing gravel worlds. He's yeah. probably the guy I'm I'm describing. Just he's on a world tour team. He's not one of their stars, but he's making a living. Yeah. But for him, it just doesn't make sense to do that because he's making so much more money on gravel. Right. Yeah, and he will be at gravel worlds. It's been interesting to talk to people about you know how is Keegan going to do. I like I have a ton of respect for Keegan. He, he's put out some incredible performances 
And I think in particular, his performance at Leadville, if you look at his altitude adjusted watts and what he put out for six hours, it's it's incredible. And there might not be anybody better in the world than him at that specific scenario of racing at a very high altitude, a very high intensity for a long period of time. However, I think what we've seen with Keegan, and he talked about this when he was on my podcast, you know, Keegan's original aspiration was XCO, which is cross-country mountain biking. He wanted to make the Olympic team. He didn't. He didn't have great results at cross-country World Cups relatively or not what he wanted. And then he pivoted into gravel and like being a multi-surface racer, and he's, he's thrived there. Now, what we saw with Keegan, like at Schwamigan recently, which was the most recent lifetime Grand Prix ride, that's like a 40-mile, super high-intensity mountain bike race on thick grass. Nothing yeah, more nuts, fun, it's Spencer. It's a nuts race. It's got to be. Nothing. Yeah. yeah nothing, nothing more fun. fun nothing more fun than Wisconsin getting that. grass. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, if you haven't had that experience, you definitely want to get out there. And he ended up getting beaten in a sprint. I believe it was a 14 up sprint. Um, he of course wasn't burdened with the aerodynamic drag of having a mustache as some of his other competitors were. And Alexi Vermeulen ended up winning from what I gathered from post-race interviews. It, everybody was just totally spun out. So it just became a matter of who can, who can have the highest cadence in this sprint was kind of what I gathered was the margin of victory, but Keegan didn't win that event. So it seems like Keegan cross country mountain biking is not long enough, super ultra long distance events, um, at high altitude or where he is the best. And then things in the middle, I think are, a question mark. So it'll be interesting to see what happens at gravel worlds where they're definitely, they're going to be team dynamics at play. And I think one of the main tactics we're going to see at gravel worlds is teams just creating choke points, making it difficult for anyone to bridge once an attack has happened. Yeah. Cause that's what happened last year. I, so I just looked up the yeah. course while you were talking. It is, there yeah. are climbs this year because I think one of the problems last year was it, these small roads. And I, I was talking to someone, an American gravel enthusiast who was like, well, they just don't have gravel roads in Europe. So gravel will never take off. That's not true. They have a lot of gravel. <laughs> like you could say significantly more gravel than we have. Just fly. Somebody, in. yeah. Somebody tell Hannibal that let's time travel back and let him know. Yeah. No, no gravel. Don't try to get over those Alps. But that these roads are really small gravel paths and you know alpeson vanderpool had a teammate there who is world tour level rider and then could just get up the road and then they could block the road and it got really tactical and if you didn't have a teammate up the road you, your race was over hopefully it's not like that as much this year because of the climbing but i think it is going to be it's kind of the age-old story right the, the a talented american goes and races and then is uh overcome by the like level of tactical racing and like the, the local oddities and, and riders teaming up against them. I, I think it's going to be an uphill battle for Keegan. I'm trying to pull up results from some of the recent UCI gravel world series races. So I'm not sure people are familiar. The quality of X world tour pros who are racing these European events is pretty wild. Like I'm, course not able to find it now 
Gravel's anyway. not big on on you actually finding out what happened. Yeah, that's that's a good point. They definitely don't want you to know. Like I was trying to follow Schwam again when it happened, whatever, a week or two ago. The only way to do it is typically from Instagram stories. And it was, it was very difficult to ascertain where that was actually happening. How long and, did that uh, race take? Like, what was the winning time? You know, I have no idea. That's a, I'm trying to find a great now. question. Yeah. Like, what are they doing that in? It's funny. There was, uh, I won't name them. It was like a gravel pro, very popular gravel pro on social media that went last year and was like, Ooh, riding in mud for the first time. Like, whoa. I'm like, well, this is just called mountain biking. Like, this has been around for a long time, guys. Like, people, people yeah. have been doing this. Okay. Yeah. Some of the, man, some of the writers. So we've got like Nico Roach. I mean, he, of course, is coming to the States and doing gravel races and has not had. Great results. Albin Licata, who's a multi-time Cape Epic winner. I believe he's also won Leadville before. And this is just one of the, Nikki Terpstra is I think that's one of the writers. <laughs> there's some yeah, decent. there's some pretty yeah, he's decent. Daniel Oss, he's okay. You know, he's done all right. So Alexi Vermulen did that race in two hours and three minutes. So almost a twenty mile an hour average through the woods. On thick grass. On thick yeah. grass pretty impressive yeah wow yeah um i mean something something i do wonder about like if you wanted to be training for the full belgium waffle ride distance like you you should budget for six and a half seven hour race that's hard to do like that takes a lot of time like if you think about it's like nikki turp really putting in the training to do that i i would find it difficult to believe or even like nico roach is busy sitting in a booth six hours a day during July, commentating the tour, right. like probably just isn't putting in the necessary training time because that's, that's serious, serious distance for a race. Like I, I, I could do it if I had to, it would not be pretty. Like I would be coming unglued to the extreme by the end. Yeah. I mean, that's also, I think part of why we don't see young people doing these races. And if you haven't been out at a gravel race in general, I would say the average age is probably 50, 50 plus. Yeah. Yeah. It's got it. It's, I don't think it's something that starts to sound appealing until, until you're at a certain age. I don't know if it ever sounds appealing. Uh, but I mean, I also think a lot of these races now have, it's a similar to the marathon or Ironman effect. We're just saying, Hey, I did unbound or whatever. Yeah. It means something among a certain group of people, you know, I don't know if people are getting those M dot calf tattoos quite yet in gravel, but surely that's coming. Maybe I wonder if there's anybody out there who's got a Leadville belt buckle tattoo, belt like on their waist. There definitely is. There definitely is. <laughs> if you've got that tattoo or you've seen it on social media, I want to hear about it. At Hardway Pod, reach out. I want to. I want to see what's going on. I somebody's do. got it. You're right. If we thought it, somebody's done it. Yeah, exactly. I I do wonder if I, I don't wonder I. I think definitively that's why like, you know, people lament the death of road racing, like licenses aren't going up, et cetera, et cetera, because it's so much more appealing to like, let's say you go to Belgian waffle ride, you finish 30th, you didn't win. You weren't in the front group. It's like still an accomplishment to finish. You would never like go to a local road race, drive four hours to a place that allows you to race a bike on the road, um, get dropped in the first, get dropped in the, in the neutral zone ride by yourself for four hours, finish, 
and feel like you accomplished anything, you would just be like, wow, that was a big old waste of a day and money and time. Like right. making your event not feel like a waste of money and time. And if you didn't, if you weren't in the top five riders is key to business success, I, I would say. So yeah. like that's why, that's probably the simple reason why people are not looking to go race road. Like, would you rather go to Steamboat Gravel and it'd be an awesome party or go to Steamboat, Steamboat Spring Stage Race and if you don't win, it was kind of a disappointment to go. You'd yeah, probably I choose think, the fun party. Yeah, we also have to remember that what we're describing is what Grand Fondos were, I don't know, yes. 12, 13 years ago. It was like, yes. I, never, I never did Grand Fondos, but they were everywhere. There used to be a Beverly Hills Grand Fondo, I think. Went right down Rodeo Drive, Spencer. Well, that sounds, yeah, yeah. I mean, that sounds, I actually would want to do that. I, I did at that time I would not have been caught dead at a grand fondo. And now maybe right. I'm in an age where that sounds fun. But they did just see and this is a good point. Like Leadville has found a second life because of lifetime. But remember when that was the event? Like that was the hot event. And then now it's kind of an ellipsis right. at the end of a weekend after Steamboat Gravel. And it's not the cool event to go to anymore. And then Grand Fondos were once that event and now they've all but died out, it seems. It, like, do you think that's going to happen to gravel or do you think these big events will like become Kona level iconic things that you have to do? And as I say that, I, I realize Kona is now almost leaving Kona and it left. Maybe not dying. Well, it's, it's, well, it's split, right? And the reason they actually, from what I understand, I think there are a lot of reasons this, that this happened, but they, they had, I believe they had. They had the world championship in Nice this year. That enabled the, them to for the men's. Yeah. And yeah. I think they were able to double the number of entries in the men's race. So there's the from a participant level, there's the question of is that diluting the perceived value and status of actually getting into that world championship event as an age grouper? Because now you have twice as many slots. So it's actually, you know, it's it's easier to get in there and be part of the race. And then there's a question of, well, it's not in the place where this event has always been held. So do people care as much? I would say from what we saw this year, people do care as much. They value it just as much. But it'll be interesting to see what happens with gravel. I think gravel's beyond the factors that we've described. I think an even bigger appeal of gravel right now is just being away from cars and also, if you actually grew up in the country, you know that there are cars and uh, they do exist out on <laughs> country roads. Um, yeah, and so, sometimes so, at dangerous speeds, so dangerous yeah. they, they kill themselves. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm thinking about the incident in August that's now getting a lot of media coverage in Las Vegas where the retired police chief was run over by the two kids who were out posting videos of themselves running over cyclists on social media and disturbing. There was also an incident like that recently in Huntington beach, I believe where three cyclists were victims of hit and runs. I believe two of them also were killed. And I mean, those are people who are doing it intentionally to put it on social media, which is super messed up. And we all know what it's like when you're out there on the road trying to prepare to enter the world tour in 2024 as I am. You never okay. know what those drivers are going to do. Like, are they on TikTok? Did they drop something in the car? I don't that's, know. That's the scariest one to me is the TikTok. 
or just let yeah. just let's not blame i guess any sort of video based um social media app i feel like a lot of people are looking i mean those are tragic tragic stories i feel like social media sometimes carries a lot of water for that like that's just domestic terrorism like you're just yeah. like it's like TikTok challenge, blow up the World Trade Center. Like, well, that's just 9-11. That's not a TikTok challenge. Like sometimes it's like punch a stranger in the face. It's like you're just assaulting people on the yeah. street. Like that's no yeah. longer a TikTok challenge. Um, right. I kind of wish people would just call it for what it is. Like you're a domestic terrorist. But yeah, the distracted driving is a little freaky. Um, I've started, I bought a gravel bike, Canyon Grizzle, this summer. I don't know what took me so long. It's very comfortable to ride. And I, I am finding myself on a lot of little paths similar to the Veneto um, gravel world championship course. And I feel a lot safer, see a lot, lot fewer cars. And I actually feel like really whacked out when I get on the road bike on the road. I'm, oh my God, there's a lot of cars. This is not safe. I shouldn't be here. But I mean, it was always like that. I just never noticed it. Yeah, totally. And if you have the opportunity in your area to get on roads like that, that are off-road of course i think that's, that's where people want to be spencer have you been out on any of the numerous gravel group and community rides there in the boulder area no no i've well no no i went on a gravel group ride this summer it was i mean yeah. my life is a little i would say more complicated than most i have two kids and a sometimes two daily podcasts and a daily newsletter not something i would recommend if you want to get those miles in um, but if I had more time, I probably would do more gravel group rides. I really enjoyed the one I went on. Went on. Yeah, I mean, what's the vibe like? It, it would probably be. I would. I could see how you, it would be intimidating if you didn't. If if you didn't like know that it was all a bit ridiculous, you would find it intimidating. But like, I went on one, and there was a like a German businessman in town in town for work, and he was on like an old road bike, like from like the nineties, you know, skinny Love tires. It had tennis yeah. shoes on, no clips. Um, and it's funny, he, he was like, oh, I love riding these roads, but I'm, I'm pretty freaked out to be back because they don't have cell reception in Boulder once you're in the mountains. I had once yeah. never, I never thought about it. He's like, pretty sketchy if you're out here by yourself and you crash. I'm like, I, I guess you're right, man. Maybe I shouldn't be back here by myself. But he was just like, you know, like typical German guy, like, oh yeah, I just like ride to work. I just kind of get my exercise throughout the day. And he absolutely destroyed like 95% of the ride, which was made right. up of everyone clad in Rafa gear, like the most expensive gravel bikes probably known to man, just absolutely crushed everybody. So I think he probably ruined their days and maybe has even threatened the, like the Rafa business model and the industry of gravel. But that's always fun when that happens. Again, it could be a bit snooty. I mean, there are more, you can go to like, Wednesday morning velo and they have a gravel option, but it's, it's borderline a gravel race. Like you could prepare for, for races with that. Um, I would find it a little, they do have lower levels you can do if you're just getting into it, which probably are a little bit more welcoming, but that's my big gripe with cycling in the U S it never feels that welcoming. Um, especially like I've just been around it long enough that I, I I'm just like, well, this is a, a bit silly. And, and a lot of times people are introverts and they express that almost with aloofness, yeah. then you would find that off-putting if, if you didn't quite understand that. So that that is an issue. Yeah, I had Vince Murdoch on my podcast recently who he was on the Ultimate Fighter, the UFC reality TV show. He's been a professional mixed martial artist for I think 15 years. And he got into cycling as rehab from a brain surgery he had. 
And it was very interesting. He started a club called Enjoy Cycling. And the purpose of it is just to make cycling accessible and inclusive to anybody who wants to get out and enjoy cycling. And it was very interesting listening to Vince talk about his experience showing up on group rides out in Sacramento. He's an elite athlete and clearly a highly competitive guy and among the most proficient mixed martial artists in the world. And he was just talking about you know, the kind of shit talking that goes on, on a group ride, but imagine not knowing you're doing that to like, whatever you're like the local cat two guy. Yeah. And you start talking some shit to a UFC fighter. <laughs> it just, it seemed kind of funny to me. I, I do think though, when you're out on the road, there definitely is a question of safety because of your proximity to other riders and you're not in a closed environment. And if somebody doesn't know what they're doing and they wreck the group you know you're not gonna have a good day and i think that that is one of the reasons people get it's not the entirety of it but there is some element of that when people are showing up to rides that you have to learn how to do certain things in a group ride they can be difficult to learn they are they are skills it's not sitting on zwift and putting out watts and if you don't execute those skills properly or you're not paying complete attention you can really hurt yourself and other people and you're gonna have a bad day yeah it's something i think i I mean i've spent many times in like 100 rider group rides going very fast very close together i i two two group rides credit i've not actually seen that many crashes now that i think about it um and i I have had coaches clearly you're you're not from socal because every group ride i ever did in socal there was always a massive crash like out at the rose bowl which is basically a training race you have to risk it you have to you got to risk it for the biscuit but the rose bowl training ride goes around the perimeter road around the rose bowl it's one of my favorite group rides and it suits me because it's quite flat but we're probably you're probably averaging 27 to 30 miles an hour for good portions of that ride and on the interior you have people rollerblading walking pushing shoulders whatever and then at one point you're going around a soccer field where they're always I don't know, like 10 different teams practicing games. And it was a very common thing for a soccer ball to land in the middle of the Peloton while you're going, when you're going around the soccer field, you're typically going 30 plus miles per hour into this giant sweeper 180. And yeah, just imagine that like a soccer ball lands in the middle of 150, 200 people going 30 to 35 miles an hour. What could all, go wrong? All skill levels. What could go wrong? What could Nothing. go wrong? I do think in Boulder, there is a, Something that helps the group rides is a lot of people are either Olympic, like there's a lot of Olympic um, triathletes. So they're not taking major risks because they're trying to perform at a high level. And then a lot of the non-professional athletes fancy themselves like world-class master racers. So it's like no one wants wants to risk it because I got master worlds coming up at the end of the month. So it does actually, I feel like, subdue the group rides slightly. People don't take major risks. But I've had coaches that, swear never to go on them i know colby pierce is not a big fan of uh of the old bus stop ride but yeah i i i mean i could see both sides i would say in colby's defense the fastest i've ever been in my life are the two years where i didn't do any group rides and just did my own training and i was absolutely flying so perhaps mr pierce has a point there but i would say it's less fun it's very fun to go out there and race the people andrew i've got to do school drop off but we'll release this as a sort of lost tapes episode um, at some point in the next few weeks is uh, just a little bonus for the for the listeners. 
This is the warm up. That interview is going to be hot when it uh, when it happens. It's We're coming. I can feel it up on the field. Yeah. Yeah. Stretching out, touching our toes. All right. All Sounds right, well, good. Thank you so much, and we will talk soon.